This show may contain explicit language and or spoilers. Welcome back to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. I'm Tom Duncan, and joining me today is special guest, Braden Ganter. You want to say hi? Hello, this is Braden. And tonight we're discussing the 1986 John Hughes classic, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. But before we get to that, let's introduce our guest. So, uh, this being your first guest appearance of possibly several on the podcast, Braden, uh, we'll get you through our kind of hot seat that we put all of our guests through. So number one, just tell us about yourself and why you love movies. Yeah, um, my name's Braden. Um, I think I we got say, that. <laughs> I would say the reason I love movies is because uh, we never played many video games. When I was growing up, we basically had a Super Nintendo, and that was about it. Okay. So our entertainment at home, you know, when we're alone and we don't have friends to play with or when it's running out, um, was mostly movies. We didn't have the video games. We didn't really have good cable. We didn't have much else to do. So um, it'd usually be pop in a VHS and, and watch it. <laughs> All right. And so then what is your favorite movie and why? I usually say it's The Godfather. Um, Which one? Part one. Okay. Part one or part two, I could take either one really is my favorite. Um, they, they both always rank as one of my favorites. Um, I've got a couple others that sometimes say are my favorites, but they don't stick uh, on the top. Uh, you know, they don't have the same lasting effect. So Okay. So then what makes a good movie for you? I do think um, when I'm looking through the categories that you guys do on your podcast, maybe rewatchability is the biggest factor for me personally. Because if I say to myself, I can't really go back and watch this movie a few more times and enjoy it, then that really um, affects the movie negatively. You know, personally, if I don't think I want to go back and watch this just on any given day, um, that really makes it worse. <laughs> so. Fair enough. All right. So full disclosure, this is actually the second time we're visiting this movie. The first time um, I did it with Dana a few months back in quarantine and we were saving it. Uh, but I went and re-listened to the episode and um, Dana's hatred of all John Hughes movies and all these teen 80s classics um, really came out. So in the benefit of the audience, we're just going to retape this thing with somebody who's a little bit more um, enthusiastic or at least friendlier toward the film that isn't quite so jaded, maybe, right. or cynical. Uh, so, but I had discussed this with you just generally, um, you know, getting to know you and whatnot, uh, about possibly redoing this movie. So why did this appeal to you as one that um, you thought you might want to do? It's definitely a very memorable one. Um, a lot of pop culture references, a lot of presence. I mean, most movies that are kind of as old as this one don't really stick around as much where I have actually seen it many times in, in college or growing up, or it's just kind of shown on, on TV, you know, frequently. I mean, this is a highly um, rewatchable movie. It's a cable movie. Um, I remember a few months back when we were going to watch it for the podcast, it was on Netflix. And uh, I watched it once through, then Sarah came out like right at the end and said that she'd never seen it. So then we just like rewatched it straight again. So I actually watched this back to back. Um, but it, it's just one of those that's kind of like the cable era of really great movies in that, that particular genre. Um, but uh, I, you know, it's not something I necessarily grew up with, although I know a lot of people did. But this is certainly a um, really highly fun uh, movie to kind of revisit every so often. Yeah, I'd agree. I definitely think um, it's something you can see flipping through the channels and you stick on for a while. Uh, and it's an easy movie to follow. You can actually flip away, flip back. You kind of know where they are in the story. And it's only like, I think an hour and maybe 36 minutes, hour and 40 minutes. So it's really not one of those like that you have to try and pick up and then um, it's like one of these giant epic films. This is kind of one of those digestible snack size type of uh, movies that you can easily move through. So uh, let's kind of uh, move forward with the rest of this. Uh, just basic plot summary. Uh, most people kind of know the film, but we'll take you through it anyway. 
So Ferris Bueller, played by Matthew Broderick, has an uncanny skill at cutting classes and getting away with it. Intending to make one last duck out before graduation, Ferris calls in sick, borrows a Ferrari, and embarks on a one-day journey through the streets of Chicago. On Ferris's trail is high school principal Mr. Rooney, played by Jeffrey Jones, determined to catch him in the act. Now, this movie is not one that was uh, highly recognized at the time. It only got one uh, Golden Globe nomination for Matthew Broderick, um, but like the Golden Globes is kind of um, a weird award ceremony anyway, which uh, most people don't put a lot of street cred in because it's the Hollywood Foreign Press uh, as opposed to the Academy or something else. That being said, I've maintained that the Academy does not get it right more than like once every three years. So, you know, give or take, we'll understand that one. Uh, but this was the number 10 grossing movie of 1986, which I don't think a lot of people would um, necessarily think, um, given how popular it's been or how uh, this movie is so highly quotable. It's got so many iconic scenes to it um, that it's kind of lived on or has that um, uh, cult status uh, after the fact. So, um Normally, at this point, we would ask, what is this movie about? But I think the movie kind of does that itself. So I'm not even going to bother. I'm just going to go with, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. I, I really don't think I can, I can do much better than that. Right. It's basically just a legendary day that he decides today is going to be a great day because I don't get many more of those until I've got to move on. Right. And it, it's kind of that senioritis thing that we all had at one time or another where um, you're just kind of in those last few weeks of high school and uh, you, you're not sure where you want to go or what you want to do exactly, but um, you're just trying to enjoy whatever's left because you don't care that much about um, trying to end your school year correctly. Um, you know you're moving on and that pretty much everything's been accomplished. You just kind of want to slough off a little bit and i think everybody kind of that that's kind of a universal thing right so, so anyway uh moving on best performance who did you have down for your best performer in this movie i think it's matthew broderick i mean um i hate to go with just the easy answer but it, this movie isn't as rewatchable isn't as good if if a, he doesn't pull it off really you know he pulls off the character it's fun. It's light. Um, you know, I could see it going down the wrong path if it's a different actor. I absolutely and 100% agree because I, I know it's, uh, you don't want to necessarily go with the easy answer, but sometimes the easy answer is also the obvious answer. And uh, honestly, this is such, I, I don't know if you could really see anybody else in this movie because he's so attuned to the role. He is Ferris Bueller for now and ever, and it'll be on his tombstone. And um, that that's just everything related to him. That That's going to be who he is, particularly because he hasn't really done anything memorable outside of, I think he might've won a Tony for um, doing the producers on Broadway when they adapted it as a, more of a musical. Um, but this is, this is him. I mean, this was his character of the eighties. This is like, um, uh, oh, why am I drawing a blank? Uh, Kevin Bacon's character in Footloose. Like, it's the character that you know immediately. Or, yeah. um, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of other... Um, Tom Cruise when he's... Tom Cruise and Top Gun, yeah. Okay, yeah. Maverick. Yeah. Uh, or I was th trying to think uh, John Cusack and say anything. Like, you know, there are certain iconic characters that um, they're they're just... That's who they are. Yeah, I was actually thinking risky business for Tom Cruise. Interesting. Uh, but okay. Yeah, just... the the underwear slide. I guess <laughs> yeah. Tom Cruise is kind of bigger than some of his characters, but I don't know. It, it, it's one of those. I'd be uh, very curious about uh, what I guess his most memorable performance of the eighties are. Uh, I know for certain that Dana's not going to want to do the Top Gun episode. Yeah. Well. So. For being a child of the 80s, he certainly hurt, hates just about everything 80s uh, involved in that. So, uh, best minor performance, uh, I had Alan Ruck. I really don't think, uh, because at the heart of this, this is a buddy journey movie. Like, every other character is kind of superfluous to this. They're on the periphery. 
And there are a lot of good character performances. Um, Jeffrey Jones, um, although we'll we'll get to his uh, the drawbacks of that, um, particularly uh, afterward. But um, you know, uh, you get to Mia Sarah and um, Jeannie, and I can't think of her name right at the moment. But um, all of these are really secondary to Alan Ruck. And I, again, this is one of those where he's iconically Cameron and will be Cameron forever and it will be on his tombstone. So I don't think that um, Ben Stein meets the threshold as the teacher. Sure. But, um, you know, he has such a minor role, as maybe three minutes in the movie, um, because other than him, yeah, I would agree. There's there's Cameron and that's about it. Um, I do agree also, Cameron, uh, just he doesn't overact you know which is kind of my one problem with uh the actor that plays mr rooney um and i do think he would probably be the right person for this uh nomination so but go on on ben stein i mean i i know that might be one that you want to appeal on it, it's certainly fine to expand the category um you know, I just think he did that so well of making you feel bored and hating school. You know, a lot of people who are watching this movie have already gone to school or in school, and they just understand that feeling of not wanting to be there. And he does it perfectly. He is the teacher <laughs> you just can't stand to sit through on a Friday afternoon. I mean, it's <clears throat> it's not one of those that I nominated for best scene, but the the entire scene where the class is like, or drooling on themselves because of how boring his economics presentation is. Um, the, everybody can literally relate to that being in like, if you're in May or the middle of May and uh, it's beautiful outside and you're stuck sitting to somebody who just drones on in a monotone the whole time talking about anybody, anybody, voodoo, voodoo economics. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really adds to the contrast to the day uh, Ferris and his friends are having um, to the rest of these people in their classrooms. All right. Uh, who did you have for your most charismatic? I'm going to go right back to Matthew Roderick. I don't yeah. know who else I would even choose, you know. Uh, it would be hard to choose anybody else in this particular role. I think you're supposed to um, relate to Cameron the most but be drawn to um, Ferris the most, if that makes sense. Uh, Cameron is the one that, like, is everybody else that's stuck in their um, doldrums or their uh, regular lives, and they need to be brought out and kind of, like, drug along. But Ferris is the cool friend that you never really had who kind of drags you through the rest of the day, and you're like, oh, that's really neat that thing he did there or that thing or how he got away with that or how he outsmarted that thing. And that happens through the entire course of the movie. Yeah. And I think uh, the actress that plays Sloan, I think it's Mia. Yeah. Mia um, Sarah. I think she does a good job of kind of going along and enjoying the day, but uh, since she's not really carrying it along herself, uh, you know, she's not a good nomination. No, I, I would say that she's charismatic. Like, you're drawn to her for um, her feminine quality, but it's not in the same way where like, um, and again, there are a lot of subtleties to this film, but the whole save Ferris thing. And you just kind of like laugh at how often that comes up either in a very explicit way where they're doing the coin drive in order to help raise money to give him a kidney or, you know, it's written on somebody's binder in the final credits sequence or, you know, all of the other things that go along with it. And I think that's um, really speaks to the charismatic nature of the character itself and how well he seemingly played it, that everybody seems to love him. And there are just some people like that. That is the definition of charismatic is, is they're popular beyond what you can comprehend. Right. And there's also the scene where his name's on the water tower. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. The Wrigley Field sign. Uh, so you know, there might not or they, be they, realistic, they, but well, <laughs> neither is his story getting into the afternoon paper all over or all of a sudden, yeah. you know, within exactly. the course of the day. All right, so uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, 
8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. I have 15 scenes currently nominated or potentially nominated uh, for best scene. Uh, th- again, there are too many, and I had a problem cutting out probably about 10 of them. There are so many small things. So I may even narrow down some of these, but as we go through them, you can throw in whatever you want uh, as far as the sequence. The opening scene, you know, Ferris being sick, playing this whole thing up, um, you know, getting his parents to buy it, and it kind of sucks you into the film. Um, they don't, it, there are very few films that um, don't have to go through some level of like exposition and explain a huge uh, amount of the premise. This film figures out how to do the premise in three minutes. And it just, bang, we're right into things and you're, you're into the middle of the action. We're carrying on and you can launch into the rest of the film. We understand exactly what everything's about. We didn't know, need to know anything about Ferris before this really or anything um, too much about his family or his parents, his school life. Uh, we get little pieces of that as we go along, but it just it really launches us into the film. Uh, number two. Explaining how to fake sick. I think it's uh, one of those where you really notice the difference of this. You know, one of my worst performances and they bought it. Um, You know, and he explains the clammy hands and licking his palms and he's doing or breaking the fourth wall, which I mean, he constantly does throughout the course of the movie. But it's one of those where you set up and where the the character becomes different by narrating directly to the camera. Um, and there are just uh, a lot of the lines that we're going to get to that I have nominated for best line do come from, or at least a, a couple of them come from this scene. First appearance of Mr. Rooney, uh, where he's calling Ferris's mom. Do you know Ferris has been sick nine times this year? And you, you for being so early on in the movie again this is one where you maybe have 10 or 15 minutes and you get almost the entire layout of the film within that that stretch of time and the rest of it is just them carrying on uh i think it's a brilliant piece of writing um particularly by hughes and um you know how they went about doing this to set him up as the foil because you have to have a good antagonist in some regard and Jeffrey Jones is so creepy as the vice principal, but so easy to laugh at because he's a buffoon that, uh, you know, all of the rest of his um, foibles as we go along become that much bigger because of uh, how that first scene kind of sets him up. Um, Actually, I did apparently nominate Ben Stein's economic class. So we've already kind of generally talked about it, but uh, anybody, anybody, I actually forgot about that part uh, until we watched it this time and uh, trying to get an answer from anybody in the class. I've definitely had a few days like that where no yeah. one was going to answer. It's like, just get through the material. Yeah. Well, and you having been through law school, I'm sure <laughs> there were more than a few of those days. Um, the next one I have, I labeled as Ferris's Sixth Symphony. Um, he's doing the cough buttons, but he's playing um, Beethoven. But he's doing it in all of those on his keyboard and recorded those as like precursors in order to fool the freshman. It's just an uh, I particularly highlight it as a source of ingenuity. You're you're getting through this, and from um, the uh, stuff with the doorbell to the answering messages to all of these other things, the amount of detail and planning that Ferris has to go through in order to like take these days off. And all of the um, pieces, you know, from the trophy and, um, you know, the dummy in the bed and all of these other things that you go through through the course of the movie. This is where you really get a side of uh, the lengths that he's going to go to in order to um, verify or, you know, take the day off. And I think this is something that's kind of referenced back to uh, culturally and stuff from, from other movies and other TV shows. This is one of those scenes they go back to a lot uh, and do their own kind of spinoff or, sure. or, you know, ingenuity. Uh, so the next one I had down is George Peterson. Um, <laughs> and particularly, you, you don't get the, the George Peterson thing. You're kind of guessing along with Jeffrey Jones that it's Ferris, 
the whole time. And then all of a sudden, you know, Ferris is on the other line and you get this horrified look and it was Cameron the whole time in his, um, you know, just a uh, high, weird voice. But uh, that scene just works so well. Um, I think they undercut it a little bit as the film goes along because Mr. Rooney eventually, like, after letting Sloan go, uh, seems to think that, like, they pulled one over on him. So it only convinces him for so long. But uh, ultimately, I think that's one of the funnier pieces in the film. And uh, there there are so many good sequences to this one, but I, that's just one I can't uh, leave out. Yeah, in fact, I'd note that's probably my favorite of this long list that we've listed off so far. I think they just really uh, played it well. You're laughing along, you're entertained, you're you're following what's going on. You know, it really just brought me in. So the next one I had is Ferris Bueller picks up uh, Sloan. Uh, all I'm going to say for this particular one is uh, to requote Mr. Rooney. So that's how they do it in that family. And if you've seen the movie, which I'm hoping at this point that you have, um, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, then uh, we get the appearance by Ferris's mom. And again, this is one of those like ingenuity ones, but this is, you know, the, the cleverness of all of the uh, things that he has to do in order to uh, fake being sick. And she walks into his room and you're thinking, oh, he's not going to be there and there's nothing set up. And it's him snoring or that the rollover. And then you get the um, kind of explanation. You see the ropes and the pulleys and the soundtrack and all the other uh, things that go into it. So uh, it's just another one of what those that kind of like sets up his level of it. But uh, the next one I had uh, Ferris outsmarts the maitre d. We've all had one of those snooty elite people that kind of like looks down on us. Um, now, obviously, in Ferris's case, he kind of deserved it for trying to pass as Abe Froman, the sausage king of Chicago. But uh, ultimately, that he, uh, in the moment, was able to think of a way to get uh, one over on this guy by calling the line and then posing in order to uh, pull this off and uh, get them into the restaurant, I think was just a, a clear case of you figure out this guy's one real slick character. Yeah, and you really love that Ferris does win out in the end and kind of, you know, insults him, and, and then he takes it, you know. So <laughs> that, was, that was part of the enjoyable part of that. Um, I nominated this one more of, it has a um, great line, which I didn't nominate for best lines I could have, but um, but also for the creepiness of the scene. So it's Rooney at the pizza pub and he tries, he thinks he's confronted Ferris. He sees somebody wearing his jacket or whatever he's got on and uh, with kind of his haircut and only to find out that, you know, he, he makes this whole big speech and finds out it's a, a young girl and we'll get into why that's especially creepy later, but um, he's just such a weird character and it's from everything about him it, it, it there aren't too many better um illustrations of just kind of that creepiness factor than than just the way jeffrey jones looks yeah and i just think uh, things have not been going this way this day and this is where things really take a turn for the worse well, and, you know, he finishes off by uh, ordering some pizza. Then, uh, And, again, this is one I didn't nominate or didn't, uh, excuse me, didn't nominate as one of the best lines. But, uh, you know, they're going toward the baseball game. And, you know, what's the score? Nothing, nothing. Who's winning? <laughs> I mean, the guy who's barely paying attention and he would have seen Ferris had the TV changed just slightly. But it's one of those where you're just kind of a doorknob and you realize how, you know, it's not that Ferris really needs to think that hard in order to outsmart this dumbass. It's just one of those things. You just realize his level of um, problems. Um, I'm actually going to take one out because I'm going to unnominate it from my own list and we'll just move on and I'll get to the, the four rather iconic ones that um, I have at the end. 
because I stopped, you know, midway through the the film and just stopped nominating ones other than the like really big ones because I had already thought I had too many sequences. So yeah, there's not a lot of wasted time in this movie. Oh no, so this it's... thing moves quickly. I mean, this this thing could have been easily nominated for editing, and I am very appreciative of how like um, condensed this film and it is, and they just you know cut out all the BS. Um, Ferris lip syncs in the parade. Cameron wrecks the car. Ferris races home and the after credit sequence. I mean, that, that pretty much sums up the last like half an hour of the movie. I do think Cameron's uh, wrecking the car is an underrated scene an underrated moment. Um, a lot of character development, a lot of he's, he's kind of determined he's going to choose his own path in life and quit trying to do exactly what his dad wants him to do. That's what I've read into it. There are a lot of pieces that go into that movie or into that scene, excuse me. And that would be one of them. The other thing is, is that um, you're questioning whether his dad is abusive and that that has another layer to the scene. But it's ultimately the true emotional um, finality of of the movie. The rest of it's just fun. But for the one piece of heart that has to this movie, again, we'll go back to it, that uh, Cameron is the one that we're all supposed to be. And Ferris is the one that um, is the friend we all wish we had, not the person we directly relate to. So then when Cameron has this final sequence where he's going to stand up to his dad and he's going to do his own thing, that adds the most probably emotional weight yeah, and so the whole point of this movie, as Ferris kind of says it is, to get Cameron to have fun. You know, he's wound so tight, this and that. Uh, in fact, so this is actually my favorite scene. And okay. I think it's because he really does uh, have that character development, um, and he, he does one better. He doesn't just have fun. He actually kind of um, comes to a breaking point in his life where he decides he's going to, you know, be his own man. He's going to choose his own path. He's going to, you know, confront his dad. And, uh, you know, you can't help but assume he finds out that his dad really does love him and he's just a little mis- misunderstood, you know. But to me, it's, it's probably the best scene. So I usually separate and that we have it as uh, primarily two characters or two separate categories best scene and favorite scene um since you gave your favorite but it's also going to be your best i'll give my uh favorite scene being george peterson uh there's just something about it that i I like the way that's paced the way it plays out all of the the um, subtleties to it and everything that goes into that particular uh space um that would be mine but um I guess as far as best scene, because you nominated the wreck the car scene, I'm going to do Ferris races home. Um, I, I I just like the way that that kind of plays out. The only other one that if I were to nominate some something as an honorable mention um, would be the opening um, kind of ex- explanation or the expose after that mm-hmm. first scene where he, he tricks his parents. It's kind of that that piece after that, but that again, that's only as like a, an honorable mention, just because I think there are so many that you could really nominate. And I'll clarify just a little bit. That's my favorite of the fifteen you listed for best scene. But oh, I my personal favorite scene is actually a different one. Okay. Um. So. <clears throat> so, say, are there any that I didn't uh, add that you would like to nominate? Uh, the only one I will nominate. Excuse me. <clears throat> Uh, is the art museum actually so, okay uh and i don't know where you put that exactly because it's just um it's not really the best scene it's not the most indelible moment it's not the favorite scene but to me it actually like kind of convinced me like hey going to an art museum can be fun and, and like enjoying art is something that you might be able to do yourself personally it is one of the best movies for um, tourism of Chicago. I, I'll definitely say that. Um, being from Wisconsin and having visited there enough times and being at the art museum and 
you know, some of the other things, the Sears Tower, they don't get to all of the Chicago pieces, but it is it is uh, along that line. So I don't think I've actually given you my favorite scene, but I do think it's Ferris explaining how uh, to fake sick, as you put it, or defined it. Um, which is that scene with maybe two or three really good quotable lines, including, you know, life moves fast and all those other things. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the one that really sucks you in. And again, it's the one where he breaks the fourth wall and gives um, kind of that explanation. But you un- understand more of the character through that scene uh, as we go along. Is there any particular part that just, like, um, is endearable to you? I just think it kind of encapsulates the movie. Yeah, so. okay. All right, so let's just quickly move to most indelible moment. Um, there are really two that I think, and I, I can't separate the two, um, but I think are the the two that more than anything uh, have a certain legacy as they go along. So number one being um, the lip syncing in the parade. That's been played over, redone, um, played off of, reference to, I don't know how many times. And the other one, um, and it's been redone, referenced, um, alluded to, and then done as a Super Bowl commercial last year, Ferris Racing Home. Uh, I don't think there are two bigger iconic moments. There have been a couple where you could really put, because again, this one is like so iconic to the 80s. I could have easily put down Euler, Euler, because that one is highly quotable, but uh, ultimately I think it's those two. Yeah, in fact, I think it's the parade. So, And I would normally just defer to the parade being the only one, but I, given how the other scene plays out uh, and that it, it has been re-referenced, I, I do think that is one where um, I have to give it its due, and I really don't want to separate the two. Yeah, and I don't think you have to, but... All right. So that's probably a good spot to just quickly cut to uh, one of our sponsors. Uh, We'll be right back. And now I want to tell you about Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It gives you smart creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone, tablet, or computer and helps you distribute them to all the major platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and more. Plus, they help to hook you up with sponsorships like this one, no matter the listener size, which will help your help you fund your podcast. And best yet, it's free to use. Look, if you've ever had an itch to talk and express yourself about a topic you like, there is no better time than 2020 to do so. I've started two podcasts this year alone, including this one, and we use Anchor for each and every episode. So what do you have to lose? Download the free Anchor app and or go to anchor.fm to get started making your own podcast today. And welcome back. All right, so let's cut right into best lines. Again, this is another one where um, it's going to be really hard to narrow it down. Um, I think we probably default to one or two of them, but there are just so many good lines from this movie that have been quotable forever. Um, but uh, we'll we'll go from there. Um, <laughs> Ed Rooney, I don't trust this kid any further than I can throw him. Grace. Well, with your bad knee, Ed, you shouldn't throw anybody. It's true. Uh, Movie. All of the primary characters you have gotten up to this point, the holy trinity of primary superheroes, Batman, Superman, and Spider-Man, you know, they're in their, or they have their uh, secret identities. And so they're always very protective of that, and only certain people can know who they are, and they always have to be self-sacrificing. Whereas this guy, yeah, uh, I'm, I am Iron Man. Close scene. And it's like that pump-up moment, and somehow it, it works that that uh, bravado carries through. Now part of it is also the choice to have Iron Man the Black Sabbath song on top of it, but... It was a great close to the movie. The last one I want to do, and I think it's just noteworthy to nominate it because it was eventually a staple of the Avengers series, is 
the cutscene at the end, or the end credit scene, it's been more commonly called, but the scene with Nick Fury and the Avengers Initiative, it's maybe 30 seconds, but I think that might be one of the most impactful scenes. It's not my best scene, but it needs to be at least generally discussed, but I'm sure it'll come up a little bit more later. So out of these, what do you think was the best scene, though? The escape. I think it was well done. I thought it was heroic. I thought it really got you on the side of Stark and really got you rooting for him to take on the role as being the Avenger of evil, the fighter of uh, bad uh, motives, um, the guy who is going to ultimately come through in the end and right the, the the wrongs that have been created in his name up until that point. I'm going to go with First Flight. Ultimately, I think there is a lot to be, or that needs to come through in a scene like that. And I think they did it incredibly successfully. And the sheer enjoyment and enthusiasm that you can tell in Downey when uh, he takes off and he, he flies for the first time, I think that's a magical moment for not only the character, but just a superhero movie in general. And so I think that that ends up being a nice uh, midpoint for the entire movie that ultimately uh, endears you to the character more than almost anything else, I think. Uh, I already gave my favorite scene, but what was yours? Um, I I really enjoy the... uh... The exact same scene, which is I, I thought was the best scene, which is the escape, because, I mean, it, it really got you motivated to, like, hey, yeah, this guy's really going to, you know, accomplish something. So I, I thought that was the scene I enjoyed the most for that reason. Okay, my most indelible moment has a lot more to do with things that came after it, but it's the final moment of the movie. Well, at least the main portion of the movie, not the ending sequence, but it's I Am Iron Man. And that does come up later, hopefully not a big spoiler for everybody else, since uh, Endgame was the biggest movie in the history of cinema last year, when we could actually still go to theaters, but that obviously does have a bigger impact, and because of that movie and how it all started and everything else, it is the thing that I probably remember most from this movie. What was yours? The ending itself, I guess, uh, to some extent, simply the, the, the climactic scene on the roof, uh, the fighting of uh, really... Uh, Jeff Bridges represented greed, corporate greed, and the yes. fact that uh, ultimately he came to understand that greed and his own behavior was not appropriate, and he was able to fight even at, against uh, uh, overwhelming odds since he was a bigger unit and able to do more and all this. He was ultimately able by wits and tenacity to overcome the ultimate greed associated with corporate greed. All right, we will be right back after this commercial sponsor. And now I want to tell you about Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It gives you smart creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone, tablet, or computer and helps you distribute them to all the major platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and more. Plus, they help to hook you up with sponsorships like this one no matter the listener size, which will help help you fund your podcast. And best yet, it's free to use. Look, If you've ever had an itch to talk and express yourself about a topic you like, there is no better time than 2020 to do so. I've started two podcasts this year alone, including this one, and we use Anchor for each and every episode. So what do you have to lose? Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started making your own podcast today. Welcome back. We are now jumping into Best Lines. Uh, What do you have down as your first nominee, Dad? Uh, let's face it, this isn't the worst thing you ever caught me doing. That line, I would have nominated, but it provides, or has to have so much context to it. Uh, it it certainly was one of the funniest ones, but if for whatever reason you have not seen a 12-year-old film, it is available currently on Disney+, and 
that is a scene that is a definitely funny moment of the film. Uh, first one I had, um, Obadiah, so Jeff Bridges' character. When I ordered the hit on you, I was worried that I was killing the golden goose. But, you see, it was just fate that you survived it, leaving one last golden egg to give. You really think that just because you have an idea, it belongs to you? Your father, he helped us give us the atomic bomb. Now, what kind of world would it be today if he was as selfish as you? Yeah, I. that is a good line. It's kind of a summation line of Jeff Bridges' character. Um, and one of the unresolved issues, that line leads me to that point, uh, and we'll talk at the end about it, but... Um, okay, so you have a probably a very similar unanswered question or final question that I do as well. Because part of my final question was his motivations and some of that, because if you're ever going to get that explanation from the villain, this is probably as close to we get it in this film, but ultimately this film really isn't about the antagonist as much as it is just the protagonist pushing whatever antagonist is out the way. So, yeah, I can, you know, I understand your point, and I understand the quote, and I understand where you're going with it. And it is interesting because it does do more development for the antagonist than really you have in a lot of films. One of the few criticisms of the MCU up until pretty recently has been how thin or how hollow the villains are. And I think that this being the only real character, I guess, explanation or growth motivation is kind of telling of how thinly done the the villains were in this, I guess, the movie that essentially created the rest of the series or set the, the tone, the structure for the rest of the series. So from this villain, we get a bunch of other very thin foils. What's your next nominee? I prefer the weapons you only have to fire once. It's kind of um, the epitome of him up until his... Well, he he reaches his climactic point where his life changes dramatically because his of his circumstances. The point where he comes to realize that what he's doing is not necessarily beneficial. And... Um, you know, it, it really it really kind of exemplifies exactly that attitude of the big weapons manufacturer that only looks at their side of it, which is, you know, if it wasn't for us, things wouldn't be safe. Well, I'm going to lead into the next nominee that I have, but again, you're taking it from the perspective that this is one of only one or two or three uh, movies out of this franchise that you've seen. I think had you seen all of them like I have, you would realize that even though he kind of makes a, and I don't mean pun intended here, but stark change to his life and his motivations in the middle of this movie, he still takes that same attitude. There's still that bravado of, I'm going to do it bigger, badder, and better than anyone else, and I'm going to default to trying to find the weapon that you only have to fire once. But the next nominee I wanted to put down, well, Miss Brown, it's an imperfect world, but it's the only one we got. I guarantee you the day weapons are no longer needed to keep the peace, I'll start making bricks and beams for baby hospitals. You rehearse that much? Every night in front of the mirror before bedtime. I can see that. I'd like to show you firsthand. All I want is a serious answer. Okay, here's serious. My old man had a philosophy. Peace means having a bigger stick than the other guy. That's a great line coming from the guy selling the sticks. Good. I mean, it, it could go in concert with the, the other line that I had, too, which is just uh, before that. My father helped defeat the Nazis. He worked on the Manhattan Project. A lot of people, including your professors at Brown, would call that being a hero. And a lot of people would also call that war profiteering. Tell me, do you plan to report on the millions we are sa or we've saved by advancing medical technology or kept from starvation with our IntelliCrops? All those breakthroughs. Military funding, honey. And I, I think these are the types of lines from a dialogue perspective that I always enjoy or that 
resonate with me as a somewhat of a writer because it's exposition while still driving something more these are fun quippy lines but there's also explaining more to these characters and their personality than is immediately apparent there's so much under the surface here he's a weapons manufacturer he's got an attitude he's a clearly comfortable person with himself he has a beyond confident personality because he's the golden boy his father it's a multi-generational thing i mean there there's so many different aspects to those two dialogue sets and then it it's kind of indicative that it's from one of the scenes that you actually nominated as to how this movie kind of plays out i like that we start with uh the crucible moment or him getting essentially blown up and then we go into the exposition to kind of give you the backstory and then lead back up to that moment and how they did the interplay on that one because I think it is more effective than had they started with this scene. I think to some extent the uh, interplay that goes on in those situations is a little contrived because in reality most people do not end up having those kinds of dialogues. Most of the time, people who are in those situations and they get into a heated argument end up, because they can't think fast enough and make a cogent point, will go like, oh yeah? Well, of course, that's why this is the movies. Nobody really talks like this. Moving on, what's your next nominee? Um, I really didn't have anything. I looked through stuff and I'm like, Nothing really resonated with me. I mean, there's a lot of funny lines and cute lines and whatever, but I didn't think anything was overly impactful. I mean, most of this really is, to a large extent, action-oriented. And it's the action that really makes it. The lines kind of bridge between the action sequences to me. You know, and, and so I had a hard time finding lines that I really liked. Okay. And that's fair. I'll give you the few other ones that I really wanted to highlight. So Tony and Yinsen kind of during the escape, because I think this is the defining moment of Tony's motivation. Come on, you're going to see your family. Get up. My family is dead, Stark, and I'm going to see them now. It's okay. I want this. I want this. Stark is silent for a moment. Thank you for saving me. Don't waste it. Don't waste your life, Stark. And I think that comes to define his almost rebirth for the rest of the movie. Uh, the other part, so I mentioned it briefly, the the press conference scene, but this is how he kind of began the first press conference. And I think there's a lot more in this, especially if you know how his relationship with his father plays out over the course of the MCU and that this comes back around a lot of different times. I never got to say goodbye to my father. There's questions I would have asked him. I would have asked him how he felt about what his company did, if he was conflicted, if he ever had doubts, or maybe he was every inch of man we remember from the newsreels. I saw young Americans killed by the very weapons I created to defend them and protect them, and I saw that I had become part of a system that is comfortable with zero accountability. I think not only is he dealing with the demons that created him, but at the same time, basically creating a mission statement in that small introduction. And then finally, and I think this is, again, for me as the most indelible moment, the truth is, pause, I am Iron Man. Well, I like the the whole idea or the whole concept of the uh, father-son dynamic. And, of course, being father and son podcast. Well, this, again, and I would encourage most people to see, if not all the films, at least most of them, especially the ones involving the principal Avengers. So Thor, I guess you could probably skip Thor Dark World. It's probably the worst Marvel movie that is part of this universe. But uh, Captain America has been my favorite of the 
series of Avenger movies because I think all three of them are the strongest. And then the Iron Man movies, but then create that through to the rest of the Avengers movies. There's four of those as well. And there's really a development through the course of all of those films as to how Stark relates to his parents. Because I think his dad and his mom come up specifically in a couple of different cases for each of the Captain America films. So there's kind of a larger story to be told. And given that his company and everything he's gotten is from his father, especially you can see the development of this plot line in Iron Man 2 as there's a much different relationship to his father and how that plays out and how that has to expand in order to understand who Tony Stark is to get his eventual climax at the end of the last Avengers movie. So I I think this is indicative of the, the larger sense as a whole. And yes, it's hard for me not to bring in all of the other pieces of this storyline because I mean, that's nine movies worth. It's a big part of who this ends up being. Well, ultimately, I think the the dynamic of this lays out exactly a principle that I've thought long and hard about, which is men and uh, adolescents, whatever, have a tendency to try to migrate towards the 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 point or the example that they have before them. So boys grow towards their father unless. There's something about their father that they uh, disrespect or can't appreciate or don't understand. And then they go through a conflict that may take years, if not most of their lives, to resolve. Because the norm is that you try to exemplify, and this is especially true of of, uh, sons and fathers, you try to exemplify your father. And you try to resolve the conflicts, either that you don't like your father for something or you don't understand your father for something. And I think most of the time, people go through a long period of time trying to to resolve those conflicts, especially men. And most of the male problems, the male psychological problems, it resolves around that either not liking what their father is and don't wanting to be their father or not understanding their father or liking their father and fearing they will not be as good as their father. Those are the three points. And I think to some extent, the whole concept of Stark and his father is foreshadowed in this film. And I think it kind of exemplifies what probably has made several billions of dollars in psychoanalysis for the uh, mental health industry trying to resolve. You know, I mean, I, I can think of my dad and his father, and I can think of me and my father, and that's where I came to this conclusion, and I'm watching, and in my profession seeing how men and uh, have to deal with their relationships with their fathers. And it, it's, it's difficult to be a father, and it's difficult to relate to a father. And I don't think it's nearly as difficult for women who have a much more social aspect of this. So my guess is, is that the Marvel Universe, especially this kind of dynamics, whether it's, uh, and for that matter, DC uh, as well. Batman trying to live up to his father's image or Stark living up to his father's image. I think these comics, if not overtly trying to exemplify this issue, do it subtly and maybe not intentionally or maybe intentionally, I don't know. But I think it does show something significant that's in our culture. I think that's why I have a hard time with some of these so-called serious directors. Like, Martin Scorsese has repeatedly been harsh toward what he deems to be pop films. 
and their place within cinema, that they're not real cinema. And I think there are a lot of deeper themes and explorations that can be explored in these films. I honestly don't see a ton of difference in Star Wars, the original, and why it could be considered a greater classic film by comparison to Jaws or any of these other big blockbuster pop films of the time. Why is something that was box office successful like Spartacus all that much different than Iron Man? I mean, legitimately. I, I well, there. Yeah, three cars. Well, yeah, I think there's like one, it's like a very classic Mercedes. Yeah. Like a 1920s version or something. So, yeah, it, it's it's quite clear that they have something well to do. Um, two, it's another open-ended question. I don't think it'll ever be answered. Um, they kind of give you certain hints that, like, Rooney thinks he's doing his job, but, like, why does Rooney even hate Ferris? Like, he gets this stuck in his craw, and he's so motivated that he breaks into his house multiple times in order to catch him. You're wondering why the hell does a vice principal care that much about catching this kid? Obviously, it doesn't, uh, the antagonistic nature of the character um, in order to make this movie as good as it is, like, you don't question that, but it's like one of those you, you'll you never understand if you think that hard about it. Right. And I think that's the thing I was asking about Jeannie kind of while watching the film, is why she decided to change and help Ferris. Which... Well, thank you for the transition. <laughs> that's question number three. Ultimately, um, so you get kind of, and I, I feel like there's something cut out. So they're in the police station. She's talking to Charlie Sheen. He has that whole monologue of, you know, your real problem is you. And um, all of, and she makes that fist, like she's going to hit him. And then the next thing we know, she's making out with Charlie Sheen. Mm -hmm. So it's like this dime flip. But then you think she's turned back when she sees Ferris and she's uh, basically trying to race home to beat him there. And I've never really understood. I'm in the same place as you, like where her head is at and why she all of a sudden decides to help Ferris in that moment. Right. My best theory I came up with was that she was more concerned about giving back at Mr. Rooney. You know, she caught on, he was trying to catch him. And she also caught on that he was the one who had broken into her house. Well, because she finds the wall. Yeah. So... To me, that's where it turned around because it's one thing to defend your sibling against other people. You know, uh, when there is a certain sibling bond, you defend against other people, even though you pretend to hate them yourself. So that's, that's one thing I always kind of notice with family dynamics. All right. So final question, and I think this is one of the biggest ones. How did they do this all in one day? You have a... Uh, even in the 80s, you would have said it's at minimum two to two and a half hours for a baseball game. You're at the art museum, which personally I've gotten lost in for like six hours at a time. Uh, but let's just say even to have seen all that they did, if you only took like an hour and a half, all right? So we're now operating on four hours. You're in the parade for probably at least a good half hour, four and a half hours. How long is the freaking school day? Yeah, he actually has a dance sequence with the people at the parade that he would have learned at some point. Um, but I think there's just a little bit of a nod and a wink uh, to the audience about this entire thing because well, yeah. one thing you did mention is the, the car that has like six tickets on it and then gets towed away all in the duration of this one day as well. Well, I think the whole point of it is to be kind of fantastical to begin with. So I'm certainly not... Um, disputing that particular area of it, um, ultimately, but uh, it's just one of those where, like, it, you're you go into a movie to suspend belief, and there are certain elements of this film. If you think at all about, uh, you have to really suspend the belief. But all right, uh, that's probably a great spot. I wish we could talk longer, but I'm expecting a friend for dinner. Uh, thank you for joining us for this particular episode. I hope you had a good time. Yeah, I would say I definitely did. And uh, we look forward to possibly having you back for a few more episodes as we kind of go along, having our uh, recurring guests. So um, please.
please uh, rate, subscribe, and review. Um, if you subscribe, then you'll get these into your feed each week as we put out new ones. Um, I think Dana and I are going to, uh, or we have uh, a bunch of uh, other ones still coming for the rest of the season that we're really excited about. Uh, we just got through our um, uh, mid-season point, and uh, um, so you'll kind of know generally when we ended up recording this episode in comparison if this comes out later. But um, we appreciate everything about it. Um, where can we find you um, if uh, anybody has any problems with your comments? Yeah, if anybody has, there's a P.O. box in Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> but hey. actually, uh, you know, tune in next season where I might be talking about Fight Club. Okay. Uh you can find me at TJ3Duncan on Twitter. Um, otherwise, uh, please find me on uh, my blog, which will be in the show notes, um, which can give you the outlines of this. And uh, I would encourage you to visit for uh, anything related to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. Uh, thank you for listening, and we hope to uh, see you again soon.